three, two, one, I relaunch the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I relaunch and your host for today. Today, we welcome Jacqueline Welch, the chief human resources officer and chief diversity officer of Freddie Mac. Jacqueline is the most senior relauncher we are aware of who is currently serving in her role. She took a four-year career break and we are going to talk about her relaunch success story. We at iRelaunch recently partnered with Freddie Mac on a career reentry event that we held at Freddie Mac headquarters. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to 321 iRelaunch. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Well, I'm very excited too, and I'm so grateful for you to spend the time with us today. So well, thank I, you. I would like to extend that gratitude to you. Um, the fact that this organization exists to me is such a huge bright spot relative to um, one of the tools available to folks who are looking to intentionally manage their careers. So thank you for the work that you've done done in this area. Wow. Thank you for saying that. So, um, be, Jackie, before we get started and talking about your relaunch success story, can you just give our listeners a little background about Freddie Mac, what it does, how many employees there are, where it's based? Sure. So Freddie Mac was chartered by Congress in 1970 to bring accessibility, affordability, and liquidity to the secondary mortgage place. It is a $2 trillion balance sheet organization, and we're headquartered here on a four-building campus in Northern Virginia. Excellent. Thank you. That's super helpful. Uh, now, turning to your personal story, can you give us some background and, and walk through what your career was before you took your career break? Yeah. So I'm old. So there's a lot. <laughs> so I'll try to keep it, keep it brief. <laughs> and I, and, and in preparation for this, I was thinking like how, or how did to talk about when one's career actually begun? And, and partly what I need to say here is I'm first generation American. My family are immigrants from Central America and uh, just your typical immigrant story in terms of hardworking, big dreams and move to the United States. So quite literally, my first job was when I was 10 although I don't know if I should say that at public record because the IRS might try to come and uh, retroactively get some FICA from me. But I, um, I sold Avon from door to door after school. Um, mm-hmm, and, I, and it was such a vivid memory. New York City is a grid system and my parents were very specific with me. I would have to do it uh, before the streetlights came on and still get my homework done before bedtime. So I would come home, grab my little Avon uh, bag and do four blocks in each direction. Um, and then get home, get my homework done, and go to bed. So, so this idea of work um, has been ingrained in my DNA for a really, really long time. But thinking more specifically to sort of, you know, undergrad, my first job out of school was in retail. I was a buyer with Lord and Taylor in New York City, which is where I was born and raised. Um, from there, part time at night while working at uh, Lord and Taylor or for Lord and Taylor, I earned a Master of Science degree in Human Resources. And when I completed that degree in 1995, back when dinosaurs were still roaming the earth, I um, left New York and moved to Atlanta with the idea of joining a consulting firm. That was what I had trained sort of my career ambitions on. And my first job was with Towers Perrin, what was then Towers Perrin, eventually became Willis Towers Watson. I got recruited from Towers Perrin to join what was then Anderson Consulting and subsequently became Accenture. Um, and although we hadn't talked about this before, it occurs to me that this is actually my second break, as it were, 
everybody has a 9-11 story. The very short version of mine is uh, while working for Towers and then Anderson, it's a seven-year period of time. And I quite literally uh, got on a plane every week to go to this assignment or that, which at the time was perfect. My husband and I didn't have any children, weren't thinking about starting a family, um, but we're starting to think about that seven years in. And uh, right around the same time is when the, the 9-11 attacks occurred. And I'm certain a lot of people have a similar story, so I don't think mine is particularly unique, but you have that, at least I have that clarifying moment around, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so I left uh, what was then Anderson, or at that point had become Accenture, and my plan was to take a year off, in fact. Um, so that was the first time I'd you know, sort of stepped off the career uh, career ladder, as it were. My intention was to take a year off, six months in, through two very different groups of friends. I learned about an opportunity with a very traditional manufacturing company, also based in Georgia. Um, at the time, it was called Rot 10 Company. It's now West Rock. And so uh, six months into my self-imposed sabbatical, I went to go work for West Rock, uh, well, Rot 10. Um, I got recruited from there by uh, Time Warner, which at the time owned Turner Broadcasting, which at the time was based in, in Atlanta. Um, and so that began um, an almost six-year stint with Turner Broadcasting. And then the, the meteor relaunch story starts there. I left Turner. I joined in 2008. I left in 2013. At this point, my husband and I, in fact, had children. Um, they're now 13 and 9, but going backwards, obviously, they were a lot younger then. And at the same time, you know, as our children are, are starting to matriculate and, and have higher uh, needs from us as parents, um, my dad got ill and my husband and I sat around the proverbial kitchen table and kind of decided if there were ever a time our whole family would benefit from one of us being home full time, that was the time. And so we did the math and figured out no one was going to die of starvation. <laughs> and so given everything that was going on and my personal strong desire to be there for my dad, I uh, stepped off again with the intention of, of being his primary caregiver. So that, that's when the, the real relaunch story, I think, for purposes of this conversation began. Right. Wow. It's, it's like you had a double... Uh reason for your career break. You had childcare and you had elder care at the same time. Uh, so what happened during your career break? How long were you on it? And um, what made you decide that it was time to go back? You know, it's such a great, preparing for this was a lot of fun for me because, you know, things sound so neat. <laughs> yeah. um, you yeah. know, and you live your life forward and you understand it backwards. I don't know uh, transparently, that my intention was to take so much time off, right? I was committed to the idea that I would take however much time was necessary to get my father back to a healthy place. Um, but it was that vague. We didn't know. He had a convergence of illnesses. It was just, you know, it wasn't a situation where you could go, oh, in exactly 18 months, he'll be back to himself, and then you can get back to your regularly programmed or scheduled life. So it's important for me to declare up front that it wasn't very neat. Unlike the first sabbatical where I was time bound and I said, you know, I'm going to take a year off. This one was sort of, you know, just nebulous and, and free floating. I also want to make the distinction that if it were just that our children were young, I don't know that I would have self-imposed any kind of sabbatical. It was, the, it was the combination of the two. So I think people arrive at this decision to sidestep or get off the career ladder for any number of reasons. And again, mine was sort of pressure points from two places. And so once I got my dad to a place where he was independent again, 
and we had a good medical prognosis, that was probably about two years. Um, and in terms of what that was like, it was complete full-time house spouse and caregiver. Um, and, and now I have a level of respect for people for whom that's their day-to-day life. Like literally get up in the morning, get the kids fed, get them to school, come back, get dad dressed and fed and ready, take him to his various therapies, get them home in time for lunch and fed, then turn around, go get the kids, get them to their various locations, get them home and fed, homework, get back to dad, feed dad, get him. I mean, so, you know, literally from call it six o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, it really is being fully available to to folks who are dependent on you. So it was quite the experience. So two years of that being really all I was doing. And then a, an interesting thing happened, again, just in, in the spirit of full transparency, things, I don't know what I was as planful as it all looks and worked out. But literally what happened is over the years, I've gathered any number of friends who have left big consulting organizations or big companies and hung out their own shingle. And one friend in particular called me one day and said, I have this piece of work. It's too much for me, but I don't want to say no. Can you help me sort of behind the scenes cobble together a framework for X, Y, Z? And at that point, I did have some capacity because, again, daddy was uh, a lot more healthy and, and less dependent on me as his primary caregiver. I said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And this is to show you how naive. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I didn't say it's going to cost this much or, you know, it's going to take this number of hours. I was just like, oh, when do you need it by? Sure, I'll do that. And so I fondly refer to myself as the reluctant consultant because that happened and then it happened again and then it kept happening. And so before I knew it, I had a consulting business, although now it's hilarious to me because my husband would quite literally have to remind me to invoice people. Like, did you actually send an invoice? (laughs) And so now I find myself like thinking like, what's an hourly rate? It was really, so I sort of backed into that. So maybe that's nine months a year. And to your point about why go back, to be clear, I am neither a Harris. uh, I did not marry for money and I've never hit the lottery. So I work. Um, We've talked about that at the very front end. So at some point you're doing the math and you're thinking, yeah, I got to get back to work. And so I sat down and did what most people do when they're thinking about what next for their career and made all kinds of lists. You know, would we be willing to move? What kinds of industries am I interested in? What kind of work do I think I want to do? What kind of person do I want to work for? What's my vision for the team that I want to be part of? Just to start getting a mind thinking about, yes, we're going back to work. Um, And I started going on interviews. And here's another thing that kind of serendipitously happened. I had this one interview. It was fantastic. Me and the woman, it would have been my boss. It was kismet. And we could just not get the money to work. It was just impractical. I can't work for that. She's sad about it. I'm sad about it. And she says, well, how about we carve out some blocks while I'm still looking for this this perfect person, this unicorn, um, that you can help me keep the momentum going? So again, another piece of con- or consulting work. Um, and so that at that point, I go, huh, <laughs> now we're starting to gel. Like maybe I could do this in a way that's reasonable and continues this level of flexibility I've come to enjoy. So, so that went on for almost another year. Um, and I think I would have continued doing that, except I really do enjoy being inside of an organization and having a little bit more structure. So there was a point at which I go, okay, I need to start putting myself out there, parenthetically speaking, in terms of finding another full-time, full-time opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hearing so many themes here as you're speaking, Jackie, from the, you know, I didn't mean to to take so much time off. Or I didn't think or know how much time I was going to take off at the beginning. And you hear this from relaunchers, you know, you think you're only going to be out for a year or two. And, you know, you were out for about four years. And some people wake up one morning and all of a sudden 10 years have gone by or they started out with a career break for childcare reasons, and then all of a sudden they had an elder care responsibility fall, uh, uh, come into the, their lives right as they were thinking about going back to work. So then their uh, career break gets extended. And also this whole concept about how you can never, with relaunching, I feel you you can never generalize from one person's experience because no, everyone has so many unique factors that um, contribute to the length of their career break or why they took it or when they decided to go back to work. It's 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 so every person's story is unique. Um, and the the other piece about and then this is so important about how you say you sort of backed in almost accidentally into the these consulting opportunities. Um, you know, having this friend network and having people know who you were as a professional and know that they could just uh, reconnect and and tap into your talents um, almost seamlessly. Uh, so, so there's a lot there about, you know, who you were as a professional before you took your career break and people having that frozen in time view of you um, when they reconnected for these uh, consulting opportunities. But you know, in hindsight, that consulting uh, mm. situation I was, was very, I was yeah, just about to say that. Thank you. That's those are very nice things to say. But and I and, and so thank you. Period. Um, I will add to that though. You've made an important point around seven years of consulting. Um, I sat down once to figure out how many organizations does that mean I've worked through, right? And so between my time at Towers Perrin and combine that with my time at Anderson Consulting. I literally walk the halls of more than 50 different companies across industry, some domestic, some international, main industry. And so for anyone in any role that you're in, I think the learning point here is take stock of what you do, how you do it, where you've done it, and who you've done it with. Those are impressions that are being made on you and you on the, situ- the situation and the scenario. So your point around people remember, um, and you should too. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I look backwards on. Like, like I said, I accidentally became a consultant, but if I had been more thoughtful about it, I would have gone, why didn't I just call Accenture and say, hey, look, I don't want to join a firm, but to the extent that you're looking for individual contributors in this you know, emerging gig economy, uh, I could do some work for you in that capacity, right? Which I think is becoming more and more easy to do because we're all getting socialized to gig economy and gig workers. Um, but if I were paying more attention, I would have gotten there faster and on my own as opposed to serendipitously. It worked out, so I'm not complaining, but I am making that observation for others. Like, don't forego where you've been, what you've done, and who you've done it with, uh, because in there somewhere, there might be a bridge between working full-time and not working at all that you can straddle until you determine what you want your next scenario to be and to look like. Such an important point. And actually hold that thought for a minute because I, I want to talk about that in just a minute, but I do want to remind our audience and people who might've just tuned in that you are listening to 321 I Relaunch. This is your host, Carol Fishman-Cohen. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Welch, 
chief human resources officer and chief diversity officer of Freddie Mac. And she's also a relauncher. And we're deep into uh, uh, talking about Jackie's relaunch success story. But this whole idea of what you're saying uh, about taking stock of what you've done and, and, and who you've done it with, you did this in the most brilliant way. And at the idea that you're thinking, what's the narrative here that I have walked the halls of 50 companies during my seven years of consulting to sort of think about putting it in that language. It's really powerful. So like you had this ability to not only take stock, but to figure out how you were going to tell that part of your story. Thank you for that. Again, but you live your life forward and you understand it backwards. And I had time and space to do it. So one of the things that's come out of this experience for me is um, pretty early in my career. So March 4th, just a day on the calendar. But it quite literally is the only day of the year that tells you what to do. March 4th. So for the last, I don't know, like 15 (laughs) years, I literally will take that day off and and do that. Like take stock of what are the the things that you've done because you can't wait till you're under pressure. Like, where have I worked? What have I done? The brain doesn't work like that. But if you create space to do that, that inventory taking as it were, then when you find yourself in whatever scenario, you're not scrambling. You already have, a, you've already pondered and considered your story, right? So, so that's another thing I would say is don't wait till you have to go back to work. The other thing that's important to say, because I feel like I'd be a complete fraud if I didn't say it, is I had money. <laughs> right? So that's a huge determining factor about what you can do and how long you can do it. Now that costs me. I don't say that in a flippant way because I'm still not a Harris. I still haven't won the lottery um, and I've married for love. Um, it costs me. And so there are four years where I was not earning a steady income, nor was I getting a match for a 401k or a pension. And I still have healthcare costs, right? So, so partly there's a mathematical side to the equation as well. And so years and years ago, there was always that advice around have nine to 12 months of emergency savings. And I don't hear that said often enough now, particularly to young people, but you got to have something set aside because you can't, you can't plan for everything. And so having, not having sort of the pressure of the financial burden was a huge blessing to me. Um, and so don't forego, forego that part of the, the equation. Mm, such excellent advice. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the actual moments or milestones that led to you getting your job back at, at Freddie Mac mm-hmm. and, and like, like what were the conversations sure. Who were the people, right. what happened? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of pre-work, like literally, you know, for the level at which I'd been working at that point, you know, my husband and I sat down, I'm like, well, you know, if I want to op- operate at this sort of executive level, uh, there's a strong possibility I'd have to leave Atlanta. So, yeah, so we had to cognitively sort of put our minds around if we had to move, where would we move? And we made a short list of what are places that would be, we wouldn't even have to have a conversation, just, you know, hit send. Um, and, and this for us is a huge consideration. Our children are young, we're African-Americans, so they're part, like I got calls from places in the middle of the country and I'm going, well, I just looked at the census data and we would be it. <laughs> and so I don't know, but I want to raise my children in that kind of environment. So, so we have to really, that's a big question. Again, to the extent that you can think about these things before rubber meets the road, you should, because it takes the emotionality out of it. So we had yeah. the short list of where would I go. I did also have a list of companies that I was interested in. 
Um, for me, I think once you get to a certain point in your career, the question becomes, if you are as good as you think you are, can you take your skills from industry to industry? And so because of all the consulting experiences and then the, the experiences with freestanding organizations, I narrow down to I want either financial services or healthcare. Um, so and again, this is just a framework. It's not to say like if it doesn't show up in exactly this way, I'm not going to pursue it. But it's again to get the mind active around, okay, what are the conversations then? If this is a list of companies, if these are the industries I'm thinking about, if these are the geographies, we need to use our tools then. Look at your LinkedIn. Who are the people who are in these industries or these uh, geographies? that can get some introductions to you. If you have a list of companies, you can start looking at, well, who knows somebody in that company? I, I think people forego the ask for a favor element of it. So I started putting it out there, like here's my list. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, One, I'm thinking about getting back into the marketplace. Two, these are the kinds of things I'm thinking of. Three, based on what I know about you, are you willing to make these kinds of introductions for me? And I would do that every day for like two or three hours, like a job. Um, the other thing I would say is, and again, this may not be applicable to everyone on the phone, uh, but at a certain point in your career, you start getting called by search professionals. And I'm always flabbergasted when I meet people who say, oh, no, that's not for me. And they won't even have the conversation. I go, I don't care how committed you are to your current organization. You need to take every call. And you need to take every call for two reasons. One, to understand where your skill set uh, fits into the current marketplace. And then even more importantly, the call might not be for you. If I had a dollar for the number of leads I've passed on to other people and for whom it worked out, like my husband always says, why don't you just do search? <laughs> introductions yeah. I've but he's like, people make money for what you're doing. You do realize that. And so just to be part of that give and take economy, you don't have anything to give if you're sort of closing yourself off, right? So take every call. What's the worst that can happen? And in my case, at this point, there are any number of search professionals whom I've, quote, helped um, that they think of me when these great jobs uh, take place or, or come available, right? And, and as quiet as it's kept, some of those plum jobs are still very much the economy of who knows you and who recommends you, right? So, that, so that, those are the kinds of things. But again, the deliberateness around what do you want to do next? How do you want to do it? Even if it's just an exercise, it starts to train the brain to focus and it starts to give you a way to put yourself back into the open market. Wow. That, you know, this advice, that's even for, for people who are currently working, who might be anticipating yeah. a future career break to uh, you know, make sure you take those calls for search professionals. It's, it's additionally, it, it's even more important because once you're on an extended career break, you don't get as many calls from search professionals. So if you yep. already have the relationships built from before, wow, that, that's, a, that's a great piece of advice. And I will tell you, when I landed, I literally sent out an email that had the subject line, I've landed. And I told every person I touched, um, here's how it, resolved. I'm heading to Freddie Matt to do XYZ. If there's anything I can do for you or someone in your network, I hope you'll let me know. So that's the, you got to close out those loops. I mean, relationships are active organisms and the tendency is to just go to them when you need something, um, which is not a, you know, you need something, fine, ask, but you should also just tend to them in terms of, oh, you gave me this piece of advice. Here's how it panned out. Oh, you made this introduction. I met with that person and here's the summary of what all took place. Nothing. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still all humans and we want human contact. So this is a, a very detailed logistics question. But did you keep like spreadsheets? Like, did you keep track of all the people that helped you or did you just 
have an amazing memory. Ma'am, I'm looking at a stack of four notebooks <laughs> that covers this time of period because I'm still very much a write things down person. Yeah. And so quite literally there, there would be in a notebook, a section called Carol Fishman Cohen that would record the outcomes of our conversations in our Wow. Yeah. Okay. But you got to commit yourself. And, and again, I'm not holding myself out of this exemplar. Remember, seven years of consulting. So you do learn something. Right. Um, right. So anybody working has learned something. But I think sometimes the disconnect, the dissonance is we don't apply what we do at work to our personal lives. I mean, even when I was taking care of my dad, I would show up at doctor's appointment with binders that were tabbed and color coded. Mm hmm. Because that's what I learned to do in consulting. That's how you keep track. <laughs> Why would I try to commit this to memory? There's too much, right? Right. So think about, you know, recycle your skills for your own advantage. Right. Um, can we just switch gears for a minute? I'm interested in what was life like on the personal side when you went back to work? Was there, did you have family meetings about this big change in everyone's routine or, or uh -huh. how, did, how did it happen? So it's funny that you would you would call it family meetings. So we've always had family meetings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good so idea. Sunday, night, Sunday night we get around the table. Who's on deck for like what's going on this week? Who needs what for school or their field trips or either of the grownups traveling? So that's like a standard operating procedure in our home. Mm -hmm. um, so with respect to the question, though, um, it's funny because I saw that uh, in prepar preparing for this and and and. Again, we have the benefit of the hindsight view, but when you're going through, at least in our family dynamic, we were going through it. It, it was happening live. So I wasn't polling in the way, but I'm looking back now and trying to categorize it. Right. Yes. Does that make sense? Right. So now I'm putting all this language around it, but it was just happening. It was just right. I'm putting this language in this process and this is how, but it was really just things unfolded. And I remember interviewing. And so the kids noticed that I was traveling for this interview or that interview. And I would explain, yes, mommy's looking for a new job. And anytime it was a company that looked promising, we'd go to the website and say, oh, here's what they do. And you know, just to get them grounded in sort of what's what's commerce and economy. I mean, we're capitalists, so we try to get them to understand sort of markets and all this thing at the level that they were at that time. And mm -hmm. when things got really material with Freddie Mac, we involved them with the coming here to look for a place to live and those kinds of tactile experiences. So, so you know, you just kind of figure out the age appropriateness determines what level of involvement they have. Um, but to your question around, do they remember it? They don't remember it as the time mommy wasn't, the, the time mommy was uh, when she was relaunching. What they remember is, remember when we could go anywhere, anytime? <laughs> now, now I say, well, you do know I do work and I, I have an allotment of vacation days. So it, it's, it's not sort of you just pop up and go or stay home from work today. Like I have an obligation, you know? So they feel it in those kinds of ways. Our oldest just turned 13. I think now he's retroactively appreciating like, wow, my mom was home for four years. But while it was happening, I don't know that they were making that compare and contrast. They just knew things were happening, right? Real time. Right. And, you know, I love the way you brought your kids into the process. They, you, you almost, they were almost invested alongside you because you were, you were talking to them about your interviews and researching those companies online with them and getting their feedback, even if you weren't maybe taking their feedback because they mm. were young, but just the idea that you were engaged with them around the, the job search. Process. Yeah, we try. So my husband's an entrepreneur. 
Um, and like I said, at the start of our conversation, I'm very much a corporate person. And so we feel like they have a really wonderful view of two options of how one might maintain oneself and one's family, right? So he does his best to expose them to, yes, I'm doing invoices. Come, let me show you how this works. And, you know, I do my best. The kids come to work with me to your point when we were thinking about what next we involve them at their level of understanding and and certainly because of their tech savviness, you know, go go look this up for me and tell me what you find out or look up this person's name and see what you get. So we try to make it an experience for them as well. Um, so, so far, so good. You know, as parents, we all do the best we know how. And it's not till they're like 21 and older and we're paying for therapy bills potentially that, you know, OK, that didn't work out like I thought. So for now, it feels like we're good, uh-huh. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But um, the idea that you took them to work, this is actually something that we tell parents Mm -hmm. to do, especially when their kids are younger. So when they hear that, you know, mom's at quote work, they actually have a visual for what that means. It's so interesting that you would say that, Carol. So, uh, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and my mom was so ahead of her time. She would take me to work with her. This is long before there was any take your daughters to work day or take your daughters on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. It was a practical, again, working class. Um, there's no nanny that stays home if the school's closed or what's going on. So she would take me to work and she would set up like a card table for me and she'd make a little name tag or tag for me. And she would tell all her colleagues, my daughter's coming to work and they would come up with these tasks for me to do. Like I would file, I would type envelopes and they would pay me. They, like I would show up and they'd be like, I'm going to pay you $5 right. if you'll file for me. Absolutely. I'll pay you another $5 right. if you'll type these envelopes. Now, were these things real? I'll never know. But to your point, the whole idea of, oh, this is where mommy goes every day. That question got answered for me. Um, I, I knew where she was going. My dad worked nights, so I didn't have the opportunity to see his workplace. But yeah, my mom made it very intimate for me. And so I want that experience for my own children. And I will tell you, this is how, again, you have to mind your own experiences. Here at Freddie Mac, we are about to do take your parent to work day. Because I think that curiosity around what does my child do all day, uh, I don't think that curiosity where your loved one is goes away. And so now early experience to me, because I go, I know the second my children start to work, I'm going to want to, okay, so tell me about your desk and what do you eat and where's the parking? And I'm going to want to know that. So for our interns, we're actually going to do Take Your Parents to Work Day. Oh, that's great. I love it. Um, well, we're, we are running out of time, but there's one question I want to make sure that, that um, I get a chance to ask you. So you've been back now for a few years. What, what is it like being back? And where, can, you just, can you talk about maybe break it into two sections? The like first, first year you were back and did it feel like riding a bike again and you just sort of seemed mm-hmm. like went back into it or what, was there sort of a learning curve period? And then where, how do you look at it now retrospectively? Yeah, because yeah, right, the retrospective view is a lot more clean. Yeah. So I would, I would say that that first year, you know, using that unconscious incompetent scale, that yeah. first year I felt very much consciously competent, right? So um, because of the consulting, I, I understood the rhythm and cadence of a workplace. So that wasn't much to get used to. For me, it was, okay, this is a whole new set of people, not in my geography. I've left Atlanta I'm in a new place. So it's sort of getting used to that rhythm and cadence of a different geography. 
the DMV is very different from Atlanta, just in terms of, again, rhythm and cadence. And then I'd never, aside from having a mortgage, I didn't know anything about the mortgage business. So there was a learning curve of, okay, new industry, understand the nuts and bolts generally, and then more specifically, get about the business of understanding the economic model of Freddie Mac, right? So there was a lot for me to do. I didn't have any issue or challenge around my core competencies, my human resources competencies, but there were these other things to very quickly sort of become a student of, new geography, new industry, new company. Um, That first year was really, and I would encourage people when you're leaving um, to prioritize, like, what do I need to learn? Like have a sense of how do I want to approach this and then hit the ground with who can help me with this, right? Like who can help me understand the economic model for making money around here? Who can help me understand like what's the school system? Like make those lists of what do I need to know, try to clump them in a way that's manageable and then be about the business of finding the resources that can get you competent. Um, by the, you know, and I think the other thing I would, I would suggest is when you come back, use I'm new for at least a year. I think up until a year, people will tolerate that. So use it. (laughs) I'm still new. (laughs) I'm still new. And you can see people's faces kind of soften, like, right, she's still new. So use that to your advantage. I do think that day 366, it expires. So year two then really becomes, you know, how am I delivering? What are the relationships that I've established and what are the, like, the next level of relationship that I have to establish? And then for me, too, it was sort of, okay, lift up beyond the four walls of Freddie Mac and start thinking about how do I reestablish Jackie Welch in a new market, right? So now I'm in the mid-Atlantic. It has nothing to do with Atlanta. So now you can start thinking if you have the capacity about what are the organizations to join, which conferences make sense. Because you're, you know, you're not only relaunching into a new career, in some instances, at least in my instance, I had gone off the grid almost completely. Um, so for me, and then relaunched into a new market. So there was a lot of work to do in terms of reestablishing myself writ large. Right. Excellent advice. Uh, so I want to ask you now uh, the question that we end with on our podcast and we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice? You've shared so much incredible advice, but if you could pick one piece, uh, our relauncher audience, uh, what is your favorite piece of advice, even if it's something we've already talked about today? And we actually didn't talk about it. And it only occurred to me now when you're asking this question. So I'm glad you did. Uh, What we haven't talked about that I think is important, generally speaking, but then certainly when you're relaunching is compensation. Um, Mm. And so so what what I would like for people to do, if, if, if you take notes, here is where you should pick up your implements and capture this, because it's really important. It is important for you to advocate for yourself. And with, as it relates to pay, how that advocacy looks is this, the following question. What is the range of pay for this position? And what do you need to see me do or hear what I've done that would get me to the high end of that range? And then stop talking. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You want to repeat that one more time? It's so important. Mm-hmm. It's what is the range of pay for this position, and what do you need to see me do or know what I have done to be at the top end of that range? And then stop talking. No figures, no because, and then explain none of that. Just let the person dignify the question. Yes, it's hard to do that. I mean, you have to coach yourself ahead of time to stop talking. Yep, you gotta practice. 
literally sit across from someone and practice the, the discomfort of the silence. They have the information. And, and, and I would also say that if they're reluctant to give you, that's a data point. So now you're talking about an organization that is probably not very transparent. And do you want to work there? You might be okay with that, but just recognize it's a data point. Mm -hmm. And and if they give you the range and say you're here, then either you accept that or you go, well, no, I see it differently. And here's why. And then be prepared. Um, And I need more money is not a good response. (laughs) Right. So you, so you now have information in terms of what you're looking for and it's now your responsibility to go, well, actually I've done that. Let me tell you about the time that I X, Y, Z, which sounds like exactly what you just said. Um, But you got to work with the facts, take the emotionalism out of it, get the facts on the table and respond from there. Excellent. Okay. Jackie, one more question uh, before, before we close and that is your relauncher. And we're interested in how does that influence how you look at relaunchers as potential hires? And uh, as far as Freddie Mac is concerned, uh, what is the interest in hiring relaunchers? Well, it's a great question. And I would pull up to say, I am keenly, as is the organization, so I, I lead the work, so I say I, but Freddie Mac, we are keenly interested in workforce shaping, right? So really thinking about where's the business going and where's the talent to drive the business going to come from. So to to preclude any segment of the available talent pool is a self-inflicted wound. So it's relaunchers, it's people that are, are on the spectrum for autism, it's 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 the whole ball of wax. If there's a skill set you possess that can help us advance the business, we're going to go after that that pool of available talent. So, so that aside, having now relaunched myself twice, I go, this is a population that's battle tested. <laughs> We're not teaching right. folks how to come to work for the very first time. If anything, it's sort of doing some tweaks around the edges as it were, right? So an incredible source of talent, be it moms or dads who are coming back after taking care of children or elder care or themselves, military veterans, people who are just looking to reconfigure how they've approached their career and and repurpose prior skill sets. It's all talent. And so it behooves any organization to include relaunchers in that talent pool. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough, Jackie. This has just been a terrific conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.